Hello and welcome to the All Terrain podcast brought to you by the Youth and Children's Ministries Unit of the Salvation Army in the United Kingdom and Ireland Territory. I'm Jo Taylor and in each episode a guest will be joining me to answer four questions about their real life journey and make four choices that help us take a hypothetical hike too. In this episode I'm inviting you to join me and Reverend Will Vanderhart for our hike as we explore themes of change, suffering, joy and service. Will is Associate Vicar at an Anglican church in West London and a director of the Mind and Soul Foundation. His interest in emotional health is wide ranging, reflecting his broad experience in a variety of pastoral contexts. Will is a coach, an author, a Bible teacher and speaker. Will's written a number of books around emotional health and most recently has partnered with Bear Grylls to write Mind Fuel. This book is really accessible with daily readings containing practical insights to help you to increase your resilience, combat stress and live life with confidence. As you'll hear in our conversation, both Will and Bear speak out of a huge range of experience, including the very personal, and avoid platitudes and tokenism. I definitely recommend having a read. While our conversation was really enjoyable, we were plagued with a bunch of technical issues, just one after the other. I hope they won't disrupt your listening experience too much. If they do, it should only be briefly, so please bear with. I do think the whole conversation is worth a listen. So, with all that said, let's start the metaphorical meander. Will, thank you so much for joining us today on the All Terrain podcast. Really grateful to have you here for you to share your experiences. I wonder if we could just start by... Um, you telling us a little bit about what your everyday looks like. Oh, well, um, I'm a an Anglican vicar and I have been for the last 20 years. Uh, so every day during work hours sort of, you know, starts with something normally to do with church. So I normally get into church pretty early, but I've got three small children. Well, smallish. I, I like to think that they're small, but actually one of them's now 13. <laughs> so that's kind of not that small. Um, and so the smallest one is six and he likes to wake up very early. I've also got a little Datsun called Magnum. Uh, who is very nice. sweet. So they normally wake me up at about anything from sort of 5.45 to 6.30. Um, wow, so an it's early, early start. start of the day. Yeah, and then it's it's get everyone to school, three three children in three different schools. Uh, my wife's a chaplain of a school as well. So uh, we've actually got four schools represented in my family. Um, and then I get on my bike and cycle along the River Thames uh, and I get into my office normally around 8, 8.15. Yeah, and then and my your days... Office? Yeah, so um, I am... In West London, I'm at a place called Parsons Green, which is on, if people know the King's Road, that's kind of a quite popular shopping road. I'm actually on the bottom end of the King's Road, but I, I love the River Thames. And actually, I, I keep a gratitude journal on Instagram where I take photographs of the Thames every day at different states yeah. of tide. And I've been doing that for literally about 10 years now, ever since Instagram started. So um, every day I cycle along the river and uh, I love I love going yeah, I literally cycle along the river path to get home. So I love that. Yeah. Amazing. I love central London. I think if you recognise the beauty of it, it's something that, that can get you in a different way every day, isn't it? It's always different. It's it's always exciting. I lo- I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a country boy who became a city boy. <laughs> so I, I oh, I'm the opposite. Up, yeah, I grew up <laughs> out in the, in the sort of sticks of East Anglia and then... Um, and then I, I, you know, actually, I used to, our train line used to run into King's Cross and I used to get a headache whenever I came to London as a kid. And I said, I'd never live in London 
and I've lived in London now since uh, 2004 and I'm never going to leave so well as far as Amazing. I know anyway um, so, <laughs> I think yeah. it gets under your skin doesn't it it, it becomes, definitely does it yeah, become it really home. gets under your skin yeah excellent I'm sure we'll hear more about your kind of life and your experiences yeah. as we go through the questions so we'll go straight in um with with those so we mm. ask every guest to make four choices and answer four questions because we're going on our hypothetical hike together so we'll go on and straight in with your first two choices i'm wondering if you can tell us where we're walking today where are we walking um we mm. are walking on our hypothetical journey along the river thames um lovely and um i guess we're walking uh, through some difficult emotional experiences and trying to work out what that means, how life works. Um, mm. So for, for me, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, like sort of journeying with the mental health work I do is about you know coming to terms with what we're experiencing, working out a destination, um, journeying alongside our experiences. Um, so mm. yeah, probably my, my, a lot of what I, a lot of my thinking and experiencing kind of happens in that kind of space, I think. Yeah. So we're amidst the hustle and bustle of that kind of Thames path, but having yeah. those conversations about, about where we're at. Brilliant. Yeah. And then who's, and who's coming with us? So you can bring three fellow travellers, uh, one living, one dead and one fictional. Um, my living, um, my, my, my living, can I bring my dog? <laughs> Am I allowed to bring Magnum? Yeah, I think, you know, it's just because, you know, I, I, I walk with Magnum every day and actually my, my lovely wife, Louie, and, um, you know, I think what, what, one of the great gifts is, is having that sense of sort of partnership to work things out. But what I love about Magnum is he's always happy. And so if you're having a good day or a bad day, as long as he's running around, uh, he's got a tail like a kind of car aerial that kind of jangles about, <laughs> and um, yeah, he he kind of gives me a lot of joy. I think, I think my sort of um, my alongside um, my 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 alongside kind of journey person, if I was gonna if I was gonna choose one, would be a writer called Brennan Manning. Uh, he's passed yeah. away now, but he wrote a couple of really formative books. The most famous is called the Ragamuffin Memoir, Ragamuffin Gospel. It's a kind of story of grace. Mm -hmm. But the book I really, really loved of his was called Abba's Child. And it's yeah. probably the, the, the thing that really forged a lot of my theology around um, identity and love. And uh, he, he was an amazing man. He was an ex-military man, a kind of heavy drinker, made all the mistakes that everyone makes, and then became a kind of monk. Um, and uh, support a lot of people in recovery. So I think the person who's passed away, who I'd like to walk along the River Thames with, would probably be Brennan Manning. And my that would be an amazing conversation. I think, I think he's so. A, like his writing is so accessible, isn't yeah. it? And yeah, profound, and alive, accessible. and alive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, to hear him and talk some of his journey would be yeah. would be such a privilege. In terms of fiction, it's a really I'm 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 really not a great fiction reader. I mean, I like you know I I kind of I'm not a classic kind of fantasy reader, I guess. Um, mm. So trying to pick a character out from a book that I might uh, sort of a fictional character, I, I found quite hard to think about actually. But you know, I I've loved um, just really engaging with C.S. Lewis's work over the years, mm -hmm. and and I think. Yeah. I think if I was going to walk along the River Thames with a fictional character, I'd probably, I'd probably um, choose Mr. Tumnus, 
um, from okay. the uh, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Yeah. I, I think I, I've always read that book where it's sort of related somehow because I struggle a lot with anxiety and I've always seen Mr. Tumnus as this sort of quite brave but highly strung, anxious individual yeah. who sort of yeah. he wants to do the right thing, but he's also slightly terrified. And, um, you know, and, and I like the the sort of the sense that he's, you know, he he's kind of connected to that. There's obviously he's this kind of animal bit of him and there's yeah. a human bit. And I, I feel like so often in our biology, we're wrestling with our kind of biology, with our human function, yeah. which is kind of the, the primal bit of us. And then the kind of mm. high intelligent human bit of us. Sometimes our biology seems to get the better of our mind and sometimes our minds get mm. the better of our biology. But yeah, so Mr. Thomas would be my interesting co-journey person, I think, along the River Thames. That'd be great. And I'm imagining we'd get a huge amount of entertainment from the combination of Mr. Tumnus and Magnum. Uh, yeah, I'm Mr. well, I'm not sure Mr. Snap Tumnus would. Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure Snap Mr. Tumnus it, was... snapping around the heels, <laughs> yeah, and like maybe sure. a little bit, maybe a little bit stressful at first, but by the end, they'll have found like a real harmony, and it'll be a real yeah. lovely relationship. <laughs> well, Mag 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 Magnum's a bit anxious too, so he'd probably be actually running away from Mr. Tumnus slightly. Okay. Although Mr. Tumnus could blow his special whistle, and then Magnus, Mag Magnum, who's trained beautifully, will come running back to him, no doubt, in my dreams. Oh, um, it sounds like a brilliant combination to me. It does sound like a slightly <laughs> odd journey along the River Thames, doesn't it? I've got Brennan Manning, Mr. Tumnus, and Magnum the dog, um, but that's probably quite Blood a good representation of my mind. Joy of London is that there'll definitely be odder combinations. Oh, absolutely. So they'll fit in perfectly. <laughs> they'll fit in perfectly. Excellent. Thank you. I'm looking forward to, to our company on the walk. Um, and now we've established where we are and who we're with, we can move on to our first question. Hmm. Um, well, how do you face change? Well, that's, I mean, it's, it's the kind of, the, it's, the, it's the question of life, really. To, to live is to change. I think um, a previous um, friend, you know, in ministry, Sandy Miller, used to he used to say, "Change is here to stay," <laughs> which is the kind of mm. the great oxymoron statement. You know that actually the one thing we can guarantee in life is change. And I think I'm quite a melancholic kind of person, and I guess young people won't. Well, it's quite an old word, but. If I look at old photographs, I kind of get quite sentimental. Uh, when you become a parent, that, that happens to quite a lot of us. You sort of, especially now with, with the pop-up kind of memories on yeah, my, Facebook on my memories. phone. Yeah, exactly. No, I see like, like beautiful pictures. and torturous yeah. all at the same time. Exactly. That moment of like seeing your little children as little children and mm -hmm. suddenly realising, oh, they were so cute. And I oh, would remember that time when. So I'm kind of yeah. quite melancholic. And I, I'd always think I'd love to press the kind of pause button and just go, oh, you know, I'm going to sort of stop life and just live here um, yeah. in a sort of perfect moment. And so it's quite challenging, you know, addressing change is challenging. But I think the two things I've always kind of held on to, one is that I've always believed very much that our temporal life is not the end. Um, mm -hmm. And I've had a few really, I've had a few tricky experiences in life where I've, I've kind of, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, what, particularly in, in, in 2016, I broke my back and I remember thinking, Oh my goodness! Yeah, you know, so I started thinking, oh, this is the end of my sort of mobility, and like this is the end, yeah. and how am I going to function? And I, I very strongly felt that you know that God was speaking to me about actually this isn't the end, and we can get sentimental for life now, but the the more temporal you believe life is, the more sentimental you become, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, 
and actually when you have an eternal perspective change becomes manageable because you're like yeah. actually um this is just a small diversion in the great scheme of god's plan you know for for my life or this is another step on that journey so i think ch holding change firstly in an eternal perspective is really important and mm. and, and secondly recognizing god is actually in the you know in in, in the detail of the change that to change yeah. is to grow if if you if you're always resisting change you very very rarely ever actually grow and most of our growth happens not not in the valleys of comfort, but on the hillsides of challenge. I was thinking, you know, you, you, you learn more about yourself in one storm than you do in 200 years of plain sailing. Mm -hmm. And so change forces us to grow and change also it reveals our resilience. You know, when we go through a change, we, we realize actually we can make it, you know, we're, we're, we're yeah. going to be okay. I think what, yeah. when, I, when I'm coaching around change, I always, you know, is help people to think about what sort of change management personally are, because we all have a natural disposition towards different sorts of changes. And there's yeah. the sort of what I call the drifters, the dreamers, the drillers and the drivers. Okay. They're, all, they're all approaching change in a different way. Um, the yeah. dreamers kind of like imagine being on the other side of the mountain um, and don't really engage with any of the pain of change. And the mm -hmm. drivers want to invite all of the suffering and want to kind of get through it. As, you know, bring, change everything. If you're changing one thing, just change the whole lot. Um, yeah. The drillers kind of want to actually engage with what's going on and drill down into, into that. Um, and the drifters have kind of got their back to the change and they're just hoping that they're going to wake up on the other side of the change and everything's going to be okay. Um, all of those mentalities have upsides, but they also all have downsides. And yeah, I, I, and I kind of... so, and so you would like take a specific approach to facing change depending on which yeah, of those your, categories. Exactly. Yeah. What okay. are you know, and particularly you know, saying are we resistant to change? Hmm. Um, are we are we inviting more pain than we need to because we're somehow, you know, we we want to get it all over and done with. And change doesn't really work like that. And th there is also yeah. different sorts of changes. You know, we 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 can talk about. You know, three or four different grades of change there's there's what we call positive change you know if you want to get healthy or get fit you might make a positive change um yeah. that that you know you need to make but there's some costs associated um mm -hmm. there's that reluctant change when something difficult is happening and you have to accept that that's maybe something like a divorce or a family breakdown there's a change that you've got to accommodate and you don't want to but you know you have to and then there's mm -hmm. catastrophic change sort of type four what we call change shock when something just happens in a moment without any premeditation and suddenly everything has changed, like a terrorist incident or a, a major yeah. accident or a, you know, a sudden bereavement. So change itself is also different. You know, yeah. not all changes are the same and not all changes yeah. cost us the same. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And I think thinking about change differently, I think, recognizing our own approaches to change and I think it's I probably would be a dreamer and so in my head I have a really positive relationship with change because I don't mind it and I'm, I get excited about it and can push through like, over that mountain and I'm excited to be in that different space but it does exactly what you said in that there's an avoidance of the pain of the process and also the impact that can have on people around me because 
I'm like, yeah, it's an adventure. <laughs> but that's not the case for everybody, is it? <laughs> no, absolutely. And, you know, the, this is sort of the beauty of being human is that we, we all approach these things in slightly different ways. And, mm. and again, why, why actually collegiality, why connecting in change is so important? Because yeah. there's not a better or worse way necessarily of doing change. The, you know, in, in the psychological world, you know, we talk about sort of repression, suppression and denial as the sort of three negative ways of dealing with our emotional health and well-being. Mm. And change, if change is done poorly, it's normally because we've repressed, suppressed or denied the change that actually, we're actually experiencing. Yeah. But, you know, our, our minds are amazingly accommodating to what we need. So if you're more of a dreamer, there's often reasons why that that's actually helpful for you to be more of a dreamer. If someone else is more of a yeah. dreamer, then that's normally helpful for them. But the greatest help comes when we can collaborate in change and appreciate each other's methodologies and actually encourage one another to think in different ways about what we're experiencing. Yeah. And um, if I can just go back to something that you said a moment ago, because I'm interested in you unpacking a little bit of this and whether or not it was part of what brought you to the writing of your most recent book. So you mentioned that you you broke your back mm. um, in 2016 mm. and your latest book is written with Bear Grylls, isn't mm. it? Who also broke his back. Um, <laughs> a lot more dramatic and, than mine. <laughs> yeah, a lot more dramatic. Well, I don't know how dramatic yours yeah. was, but it was a, a kind of dramatic accident, wasn't it? But my husband broke his back okay. um, in 2009. Right. Um, and it was Bear Grylls' story of facing that kind of catastrophic injury and his push to still achieve afterwards was a real inspiration for mm. my husband and actually my my mum bought him a, a little bear <laughs> oh, really? okay. to, to have That's as a reminder and yeah and kind of encourage him and and that that change it, sh it shaped our lives in a in a lot of ways and where we are now is different than I think it would have been had that not mm. happened um, and it was a change that happened and we had to we had to lean into it mm. really um i wonder if like that was um part of your connection with bear in writing the book yeah, or if um, you want to talk about how you managed that <laughs> that change for you yeah. personally i mean absolutely i like i i actually i'm i've been friends with bear for quite a long time so well before mm. I, I i i i broke my back bear's okay. breaking of his back was very dramatic in terms of his parachuting accident his it was mm. either basically, you know, he, his parachute didn't open fully, so he uh, he then flared too enthusiastically to try and protect himself at the bottom and landed on his reserve chute. Um, mm. My back injury came from rowing uh, okay. very extensively, and then I um, it blew up a, a disc, which then went into my spinal column and then began to oh, wow. uh, turn off my nerves, something called quadriquina syndrome, which is very painful. Mm but um, not very dramatic. Well, I did it actually, I actually blew it up trampolining with my children. Uh, okay. So that kind of gives you an indication. It wasn't kind of diving out of a, 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 a dying, diving out of a plane. Um, but I think, I mean, writing, like writing with Bear is brilliant fun and we, we get on really well. And he, he is just as inspirational as a person mm -hmm. in the flesh than he is 
you know, on screen. He he doesn't wander around the kitchen picking up bugs and start eating random things, <laughs> or, or like climbing around on the furniture. But he is he is just a really he's just one of life's just total gems and is totally alive and you know always encouraging inspiring the other thing about bear that i love is that he's just the same guy when you hang out with him than he is on tv okay. there's no sort of fakery yeah. he's just he's the real deal um yeah but but we but, you know writing minefield was about saying actually look we all go through we're not we might have commonality in our experience like breaking your back hmm. whatever it is we all go through the kind of the shadow of the valley of death in some way or another in our lives you know you can't escape it and um, everyone has faces storms and everyone faces dramatic changes. Um, and, you know, your your mental state, your self-awareness, your your determination and grit on entry to those incidents, mm. it, you know, it says much more about your how you're going to navigate them than anything else. Any yeah. external factor, you know, it's I think Emerson said, you know, what's what's before me and what's behind me is nothing compared to what's within me. Okay. And yeah. actually, um, you know, Bear still experiences back pain, um, and mm. you know, all these years after his after his incident, um, and yet you wouldn't know it. But that's not because mm. he's not in pain; it's because his attitude towards living that de- determines mm. how how he succeeds. And I think, um, again, resistance to change normally only extends the pain. You know, saying mm. I can't cope with this, you know, is understandable. We need empathy and we need support. We need those to stand by. Yeah. But, but the journey of change has got to go from I can't cope with this to actually, actually, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah. And and for me, I my my back injury was progressive from an, an initial uh, blow up to a really progressive debilitation and, and absolute agony. And I was on all sorts of horrific drugs before I had emergency mm. surgery. And then I have experienced it, you know, a remarkable recovery. But I was, I'd say, a, a, an exercise addict um, yeah. and used exercise really from my teenage years to manage my emotional health. Okay. Um, and part of the reason my back became so unstable was because I was doing so much more than I should have been doing. And mm. when I, when my surgery was complete, my surgeon said to me, you must never, ever run ever again anywhere or ever wow. jump anywhere. <laughs> like he's like you can do any gliding sports but you can never you've got no suspension so never ever jump yeah Yeah. um and for me that was a it was like a bereavement change you know I was although I was so grateful not to be in pain anymore the change was I literally thought I wanted to stick my leg out and trip over other runners on the towpath to stop them from running because I didn't think it was fair that I was not allowed to run uh, my initial, I had to deal with all my anger and frustration and almost like the bereavement of what I could could or couldn't do before. Um, but you, if you don't adapt, you become bitter. You know, if you don't, yeah. if you don't, and if you don't welcome change, you become you become bitter about what you've lost. And actually, I felt the Lord saying, "Look what you've gained," um, yeah. and and I'm so grateful. But it's yeah, it's, it's so much of it's up here in your head, you know, yeah. and in your heart. Yeah, Um, it It can all I think that's really helpful because it can almost become one of those. um, It can move into unhelpful motivational slogan that you get on those like memes and posters, Mm. isn't it? When you talk about kind of attitude and things like that. But it is worth saying that 
you can't change the things around you or you can't control the things around you but you can control your approach and but beyond the the naff inspirational yeah, means, absolutely. I mean, actually uh, are yeah. our tools in order to to shape how you approach change and to yeah. work on your brain and that's what mindfuel is part of the yeah i mean look i cannot the toolkit for that isn't it I absolutely cannot abide tokenism. It's the one thing yeah. I absolutely hate. So, um, you know, I've been working in the emotional health sector since 2006. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I, and I you know, I, I started Mind and Soul Foundation with Rob to try and help the church become more realistic about mental and emotional health issues. Not, you know, we didn't need anyone else saying, you know, don't worry, just pray about it and you won't worry anymore, yeah. you know, or or don't yeah. be depressed. Jesus is, you know, the answer to all your pain. Um, we didn't need anyone saying that. We needed someone saying, actually, you're in agony here and you need, you need medication potentially, you need psychological yeah. therapies, you need support, you need understanding. Um, yeah. So I, the last thing we ever wanted Mindfuel to be was a sort of book of, 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 of sort of trite, um, pithy sayings that could kind mm. of inspire you out of but like I, I think what the good combination between us is that that bear is naturally inspirational and aspirational you know he's he like can motivate people um, my specialism is understanding the mind and, and emotions and so actually what we wanted to do was write a book for people who would never ever pick up a self-help book if it jumped on their heads yeah. you know we wanted something that actually would engage people and say actually this is this is really important and there's nothing mm. i'm not unwell but yeah. i would I, but this is this is stuff that can help me live better and where change yeah. is concerned and where suffering is concerned you know if we don't feel the pain of what what we're experiencing we're we're mm. again living in denial and we're building up an account against ourselves you know the trouble yeah. is you know people use all sorts of substances to try and avoid avoid the pain they you know they we become addicted and avoid change because we can't cope with that reality when actually being fully conscious to the pain being conscious of the of the change uh, of, of of being fully aware and living in the struggle is all part of the the only way on is through you know there's no way around yeah, um, yeah. i think yeah that's what we when we think about a driver priority in change management it's saying actually that the the drillers who want to get under it and the drifters who want to kind of skirt around it and the dreamers who want mm. to get over it all need a level of drive because they need to turn around and see yeah. what's actually going on here. Um, yeah. That's the only way you can come to terms and, with how life changes. And that language of through is really helpful um, in terms of how it leads us on to our next question, mm. um, which is how do you move through suffering? Well, I mean, the question is, should you move through suffering, I think? Um, mm. I, I, you know, one of the core tenets of the human limbic system is to enable us to avoid pain at all costs. Mm. So we have two two aspects to our our um, sympathetic nervous system. Effectively, well, the, the, there's the the sympathetic, which is the fight or flight mechanism, and there's the parasympathetic, which is our, our rest and digest system. Uh, the whole the whole um, limbic system the whole the whole autonomic nervous system is there to protect us effectively from suffering and hurting mm. and you know we we want to avoid it but emotionally we need to be very careful about the language of 
kind of getting through suffering in a sense that again suffering is an uncomfortable change Um, now it might be an uncomfortable change in our nervous system it might be an uncomfortable change in our environment it might be an uncomfortable change in our um you know material provision it's an uncomfortable Mm -hmm. change that's what suffering is and actually blessings are, are a comfortable change so yeah when things started good and got bad that's suffering and when things started bad and got good that's blessing they're all part of the same package yeah and i think um i a friend of mine called tristan owen hughes wrote an absolutely brilliant book a number of years now he had terrible back pain chronic back pain it was called finding hope and meaning in suffering and a bit like victor frankl who 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 was a Holocaust survivor who who reveals the same sort of truths. There is mm. something profound and good about walking through suffering and staying connected to its reality. But yeah. it's 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 paramount not to try and get away from suffering. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah. so like again, avoidance of suffering normally means avoiding the changes that are necessary. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I work with people in all sorts of situations as a priest, but a, a classic one that really mobilizes me and motivates me as someone who's always just been passionate about, you know, championing equality and, and, and particularly women's rights has been domestic violence and domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. And and so often, you know, in in supporting people who are in that dire circumstance, the the, they're going through extreme suffering, but there's also this sort of the terror of trying to break away from the suffering itself. Mm. Sometimes you, you can, you, you, a person can find themselves unwilling, in a sense, unable to to change the narrative, unable to sort of to step away because the suffering yeah. of bringing it into the light or of the catastrophic uh, impact that might have on family is so great, and I. I, I absolutely empathise and sympathise with people in that situation, but it, it, it's it's a great um, it's a sort of an, a, a model, if you like, of how if we avoid avoiding the suffering for the change, yeah, invariably leads to more suffering over the long haul. And the same is true with addictions. You know that actually the suffering of getting free from an addiction seems overwhelming and can lead us uh, to what we call inertia, which is like this sense that we want to change but we never quite get there the suffering yeah. of withdrawal overwhelms a person from ever getting free and actually in terms of sufferings the long-term mm. consequence of addiction is far greater than the pain of getting free from addiction and mm. the, the 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 short-term pain of leaving an abusive relationship is seems huge but it's actually far less than the the lifelong sufferances and struggles of something in an abusive relationship. So what, yeah. what often happens to us as humans is we we exchange long-term suffering um, or we refuse to exchange long, long-term suffering for short-term suffering that is greater. So if yeah. our, our immediate measurement of pain is that if something is terribly painful right now, it's yeah. best to avoid that and just be mildly painful for a really long time. I mean, the simplest example is going to the dentist. If you've got a mild yeah. toothache, you think, yeah. how can I just keep suffering this mild toothache so I can avoid the terrible pain of having a tooth extracted? So you might suffer for months and months of toothache, 
But actually, if you went to the dentist, you might suffer just 30 seconds of agonizing pain and then the tooth would be gone and actually begin to get free again. So yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm wanting to sort of encourage people to think about actually some things in life that are painful, very painful, but sometimes those things are also the, the first step necessary to find a greater healing and a greater freedom from suffering. And yeah. um, So if we're in that, so we're in that kind of long-term suffering or we're journeying with people who are in that space, what are some of the tools that we can put in place? Like what are the things that you have found really helpful in, in taking those active steps to, to move out of those spaces? Well, I mean, the, it, there was obviously this, 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 there's a need if someone is in any of those dire circumstances I'm talking about to actually get some professional support. And the first thing, the first thing uh, anyone in a difficult circumstance or particularly in dangerous circumstance needs to do is to make someone safe, aware of their circumstances. But mm -hmm. it's interesting how many people don't do that because they know that that awareness making will be the beginning of a very, very painful change yeah. uh, that will cause a lot of suffering. Um, so a lot of people keep these things you know, quiet and hidden for a really long time, sometimes even years, to avoid the change that actually they, they know in their heart that they probably need to have. Um, if I was supporting anyone who was going through uh, a sort of a, a, an extended season of suffering, the, the, the primary thing that we always need to provide as the long side friends is hope. Mm. Actually, it, you know, it, the, the loss of hope is the greatest risk we face in long-term suffering. And, and, and desolation and depression are nearly always a consequence of the loss of hope. Um, yeah. and, and change, ironically, which we've talked about in, in a way and in the negative, is often the gateway to hope. Yeah, you, yeah. This can change. You know, your circumstances can change. You can get free. Um, mm -hmm. We can help you to get free. But you know, as a coach, I do a lot of work on deeper listening. And, mm. you know, I, I find it's something I find hard and I'm always trying to practice my deeper listening. We live in an information rich world where you can find out about how to get free a thousand different ways. Yeah. But we also live in a in a listening poor world where no one, everyone wants to give you advice. No one wants you to listen to what you're actually going through. So mm. if, if you were supporting someone who was experiencing long term suffering, the most generous thing you can offer them is your ears, not your mouth. You know, mm. if you actually listen to them, you're offering them hope in a very active way. And yeah. that's the, the the responsibility of the alongside friend isn't actually to fix. Uh, yeah. It's it's to listen. Um, and I and I guess the strength of that and is that ultimately there will be situations that won't be fixed, aren't there? Like there's some that where the suffering is just always going to be a reality. And if yeah. you try to offer solutions that aren't solutions, that can create that, a false hope, which then becomes even more damaging and an additional, and an additional form of suffering. Yeah. But the yeah, listening. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely I mean, that's what we've seen a lot with mental health problems um through the Mother Soul Foundation is that people have got what we call serious and enduring mental health problems or very, very entrenched neurotic uh, health problems like like sort of chronic depressions are told, you know, this can change in a sense, 
you can just get away from this and then you're going to be fine and you're not going to feel like this anymore. Well, actually, you can't get away from your own brain. And yes, there are medications and therapies that can help nearly everybody to an extent. But there is no magic button to press to get away from suffering. Um, And the friend who offers uh, superficial advice or... Um, or, or platitudes or simplistic solutions to complex problems isn't really being a great friend. At, yeah. at the same time, in many circumstances, we either there there will be a change in relationship to ourselves or the circumstances that will alleviate some of what we might feel towards them. So mm. the circumstances might need to change, but if the circumstances can't change, then I need to change yeah. uh, in relationship to my circumstances and. That's a journey that everyone goes on to a greater or lesser extent in life. Some people have Mm. catastrophic experiences that they need to accommodate. Um, We call it habituations, kind of coming to terms with the thing that um, you are opposed to in your mind. You kind of bring it in and Mm. become, you accommodate it as an experience. Now, it's really important not to accommodate experiences which are abusive. Um, Mm -hmm. So, um, again working with someone relatively recently, he'd been told that she should, for example, stay in her marriage to someone who was uh, abusive and sort of accommodate it because um, the, the, the priority of her marriage was more important than her personal yeah. experience, which is clearly wrong biblically yeah. and also socially and humanly. So I was yeah. trying to explain actually that she wasn't called to accommodate this pain. In fact, this was yeah. illegal. And yeah. um, so there was a time to be very clear about what we mustn't accommodate, but there are also things that we can helpfully accommodate and change our relationship to. So yeah. I had chronic pain after my back surgery and I went to see a pain specialist and I said, look, how can I get rid of this chronic pain? And he said, well, yeah. we need to change your relationship to pain. And I said, well, that sounds like a very interesting idea. He described <laughs> it as something called gate theory and said all the sheep of the hill are in all over the hill at the moment, they need to get back in their pen. So we're going to help the sheep get back in their sheep pen, which is pain in this region of your body, but not pain everywhere. And so we did some mindfulness style exercises and I began to change my relationship to the pain I felt and to localize it weirdly in the way in which I thought about it, which over time made it a a, a pinpoint pain rather than pain everywhere. It's amazing when we feel pain, you know, if you stub your toe, your whole body hurts. Um, it's a strange phenomenon especially toes (laughs) right but you can actually change a relationship to pain which is accommodating the pain in a different way and actually I'm I'm pain free um, as a result of some of that work when I don't I haven't actually taken a paracetamol for back pain in five years because of some work I did with this pain therapist so there are things that we shouldn't accommodate as far as pain and Mm -hmm. suffering is concerned and there's some things we need to accommodate as far as pain and suffering is concerned and we need wisdom to discern which one is which but that, again, yeah. is why the alongside friend is so important, because we need the objectivity that we haven't got to know whether our circumstances yeah. need change or not. Yeah, that's so helpful. Thank you. Like, really practical and hopeful. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And now for a quick ad break. What is Shalom? It's about loving every child and young person. Shalom means helping them to find wholeness and community by being with others, being with creation and being with God. At our 2023 Youth and Children's Leaders Conference, we're inviting you to consider what it would look like to be an army of Shalom makers. 
It's an invitation to high challenge and a lifetime's work. It's an invitation to commitment and radical love. We'll offer teaching, stories and resources rooted in the reality of the current landscape, as well as in the hope we glimpse through present ministry and the promise of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We'll be gathering in Warwick from the 24th to the 26th of March. This is a conference for the committed and also for the curious. It's for the long haulers and the newbies. It's for volunteers, employees, church leaders and officers. It's for anyone who wants to be inspired, encouraged, resourced and part of the conversation. Please check out salvationist.org.uk forward slash shalom for more information. We'd love to see you there. And now, back to the podcast. Um, we're going to switch now to yeah. making another one of our choices. Mm. Um, I can't imagine the conversation drying up because I still have like 53 million questions to ask you. <laughs> but <laughs> it was a very long we get, podcast, yeah. <laughs> should we get tired or um, should we need a little break from the voices? And um, what are we listening to? as we hike? Oh, I mean, I'm a massive fan of sort of 1990s uh, early house music. So, I mean, I would probably, okay. I would probably be like putting on something like um, De La Soul or Snap, I've Got the Power, uh, or um, uh, yeah, some, some kind of classic uh, Tribe Called Quest, maybe, or um, The Orb, I don't know, anything like funky kind of spatial and it probably speaks to my misspent youth um raving in east anglia <laughs> but <laughs> still 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 love it I, i'm probably a bit of a sucker as well for some definitely showing my age but some kind of uh, some some probably some chilled kind of ballads from the old days just to wind down to but um well, name one name one oh uh, no, let's I judge mean, away <laughs> well uh, uh, I don't know, Whitney Houston, I Will Always Love You, probably. Oh, my gosh. What uh, a no. tune. <laughs> totally cheesy, totally cheesy. But, but um, yeah, probably probably like early 90s house music would be my go-to. And and then I I really, you know, I saw, I, I followed Jumeroquai for a long time and I, I went to their mm -hmm. first ever concert in the Brixton London Academy when I was about 16 uh, with one of my really good mates. And so I've... I've always enjoyed JK and the, the kind of energy behind that. I actually bumped into him weirdly in Kensington. I was oh, wow. I was with my son and there was this gorgeous green Ferrari and my son and I were admiring and I was taking took a picture <laughs> of my son in front of it and then and then Jay from Tremiroquai came out and was like, Oh hi. I was like, Hi. And then we got chatting and I was like, I was at your first ever concert in the Brixton Academy and you had a white BMW, like, and it was a three series and it was literally, he's like, I've still got that car, you know, like. Oh, wow. He's really it. into his cars, isn't oh, he? Oh, he's so into his cars, yeah. And that actually, that green colour was unique to him. Apparently he'd done a deal with Ferrari okay. that only he could be licensed to this, like, really emerald green colour, which was funny anyway. Wow. But yeah, that's what we'll be listening to, maybe a little bit of Space Cowboy from Jamiroquai and Nice. Yeah, well, I think Girl. we must be similar generation because all of that is 
it's brilliant. That's I'm right excited about that. And particularly, <laughs> particularly Jamiroquai, big fan. Yeah, nice. So that's well, brilliant. If you're listening to this and you were born after the millennium, I'm sorry. They're, they're, I'm sure there's better music these days. But <laughs> no, don't wanna... be sorry. Okay. Go and listen to Jamiroquai. Yeah, use your, use because... your device to like listen yeah. to the old days. There's some great stuff out there. Um, it's so good. Yeah. There we go. We could have just expanded some people's world. We might um, have done. <laughs> we um, might have what done. a treat. <laughs> um, and so that third question now mm. is, how do you receive joy? Oh, how do you receive joy? Um, I think that this question is absolutely fundamental to living life in the 21st century. Like, actually, mm. how do you receive joy? is not a expression of action it's a, an expression of disposition so okay. if someone asked you the question how do you receive joy you're immediately thinking ah oh, there's got to be like 10 different tips that you can give me for how to receive joy but actually if you imagine each one of us are like a traditional transceiver radio with a frequency a unique frequency and actually the the world is transmitting joy all the time and more importantly the lord is transmitting joy all the time the tap is never turned mm. off but but whether we tune into the joy that is available to us that is a entirely different question and most people say things like when my circumstances change then i'll find joy and what they constantly do is they load their circumstances with uh, the necessity of joy so when I get my GCSE results, I'll feel joy. When I get my A-level results, I'll feel joy. When I get a degree, I'll feel joy. When I get my first mm. job, I'll feel joy. And, and what they're always doing is they're always premeditating a time at which they feel joy because they believe that it's circumstantial. But actually, joy is not circumstantial. Joy is dispositional. And Paul learns that when he says, like, I've learned the secret to be content in any circumstance. Now, Paul's mm. circumstances were actually pretty miserable. So talks about you know obviously shipwreck nakedness you know imprisonment threat you know hunger um mm -hmm. it, it, all the circumstances we'd most likely to not experience joy are the ones where paul says i found kind of joy and contentment in these circumstances i always yeah. remember um with with lou my wife we when we were just dating we went to work in africa in for three months we uh, for, for a month sorry no yeah a month we were in Africa, in Uganda, and we worked in an AIDS orphanage. And um, yeah. I remember having these, these premeditated ideas of the sort of somberness of this environment with all these children who mm. had this like terrible disease and how they were all, you know, they must, it's gonna be very hard and heavy for us emotionally and sort of preparing myself for this really heavy environment. And then turning up there and just being overwhelmed by this incredible exuberant joy and looking yeah. at these kids and they're just living life to the absolute max. And I felt totally shamed by the yeah. fact that I had so much and yet I had so little joy. And I realized yeah. that, I realized then, and that was 25 years ago or something ridiculous, that actually um, they were just alive with joy because mm -hmm. they were dispositioned towards joy and I was dispositioned towards circumstances. And, yeah. and sometimes, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is it that really makes me happy? And and the yeah. world would have you believe that it's things. Um, mm. But the reality is that things never bring anyone happiness. Like I, I am yeah. a corporate coach and I coach some what we call high net worth individuals. 
what that means is people who have are like in beyond the top one percent of the population in terms of wealth um yeah. and i and i'm a specialist i i do confidence coaching and basically i help people find happiness in success yeah. but what i can tell you right now is i've never found someone who has um who's who's really found that for themselves you know yeah. who's really found happiness and success like it's an, yeah. it's an oxymoron becoming successful does not make you happy mm. and actually when people become successful they've realized that actually there is an end to this journey that i yeah. think it's um, nicholas cage i don't know if anyone remembers that it's probably like it's a little bit of a 90s 20s actor but um if you if you're on this call and you remember nicholas cage um there's you know, some great nicholas cage movies out there but he actually he said something that, like this a couple of years ago. He said, I wish everyone had had the same level of success and finances I have. And then I realized that actually it's not the answer. Yeah. And what he's saying is that actually when you've got everything, mm. you've still got unhappiness. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the people I, the people I coach um, who are these high net worth individuals have, have by worldly terms, unbelievable success. But actually, material happiness is just so lacking. In fact, yeah. the more successful you get, the more responsibilities you carry. The more responsibilities you carry, you tend to be more st more stressed. The more stressed you are, the less you can engage with your own joy. The less joy you feel, the more stressed you become, and it's a vicious yeah. circle. So, yeah. um, you know, we're we're taught look at the next person up the next rung of the ladder and envy them and want what they have, and then you'll find joy. Mm. But actually, the person up the ladder is crying because actually yeah. they're so unhappy with what they have. But they're also deeply embarrassed because they've spent their life chasing after something which isn't true. Yeah. So most really, yeah. really rich people pretend to be really, really happy because it would be really humiliating to have got really, really rich and successful and then actually turn out that's a complete bear trap. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, and I wonder if it also creates some of those kind of deep-rooted societal challenges around inequality and that kind of separation between the poorest and the richest because if you're never achieving happiness and that's actually the goal and you still believe it's going to come from things then of course you're going to seek ways of hoarding and gathering mm. more stuff rather than sharing and living more yeah. generously because even though you've got more wealth than most people can imagine the thing that you're actually seeking is still elusive absolutely i mean that if you if you wanted to like we could talk about how to get joy and i would talk to you mm. about gratitude and connecting with creation in new ways and becoming mm. aware of your breath and all sorts of kind of interesting things but but unless you've got an ambition for 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 joy in the right circumstances you know in the in the right way men mentality wise then you're always going to be chasing mm. the rainbow um yeah. interestingly gratitude uh generosity and joy are all intrinsically linked as you described um one yeah. of my friends jim he's a he's a wealth manager for um one of the big city banks here in london he's a he's he's a christian guy and also a treasurer of um, of our church he was telling us the other night at a meeting he said that he was managing the wealth of a really, really wealthy guy. I mean, ridiculously wealthy. Mm. And um, he said he'd been managing his wealth. What management, wealth management largely means making investments for someone who's already really wealthy to make them more investments. But this guy said, Jim, I want to give away all of my money this year. 
And so Jim was like, okay, well, 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 that sounds great. And he had hundreds of millions. So Jim set about trying to give away his money to all sorts of amazing charitable causes and churches and, and people. And so Jim started trying to give away his money. But, but Jim said what was amazing about this guy's account is that actually they kept giving away his money, but his investments were kept making more and more money. And so it yeah. kept, whilst they were trying to give the money away, more zeros started stacking up on his account. And he worked with him, I think, for two or three years trying to give his money away. And then he passed the account over to someone else. And he said, I recently met someone who was working on my old account. And I said, have you managed to clear this person's account yet? He said, no, no, no. He's still absolutely loaded. And I'm desperately yeah. still trying to give away all his money. Now, <laughs> wow. it felt like this unbelievable, right? But this guy... Jim said, I've literally, he's been in this business for 20 years. He said, I've never known anything like it. But someone yeah. so joy-filled and grat grateful and so generous, yeah. is he said, it can only be God. Because <laughs> yeah. like, we cannot give this man's money away fast enough. Every time we're mm -hmm. giving away his money, his, his investments double up. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, you know, Jesus talks about this, you know, with the, with the farmer and the barns. You know, he... He started with a great crop. He should have been joyful because he'd received great benefit and he should have been generous because he'd received a great benefit. But instead mm -hmm. he stores his, 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 his wheat in barns and then he builds bigger barns and bigger barns and bigger barns. He hoards it all. He experiences no joy and then he dies. Yeah. And, um, you know, the happiest people I've met, the most joy-filled people are always the most generous. Yeah. And so, you know, in a way, they're like principles of the kingdom of God are, you know, is... is be generous, see the need in others, uh, celebrate mm. what you've received, be, yeah. be, be generous beyond your means and you'll find real joy. And yeah. I, I think it, I find it interesting because in Christianity, there's a lot of their stuff that is sort of nuanced for quite a Western capitalist worldview. You know, if you actually yeah. look at some Eastern religions, like in sort of Buddhism, as an example, the sort of enlightenment path idea and the actual ownership idea are actually very radically different. Yeah. Um, but, we, you know, and, and much more about actually you'll find joy within. Now, I believe we find joy in Christ. But yeah. uh, the, the idea of just gathering more and more material possessions and building bigger and bigger houses isn't, it's not a universal phenomenon. You know, if yeah. you travel, you realize that not everyone in the world believes that this is actually the way to live. But it yeah. does fit very well within a Western economic where yeah. you're trying to create a capitalist marketplace where people need big houses and therefore need big things and then they need smaller yeah. things and other things to keep generating wealth. So yeah. it, I, I would, you know, I know it's a bit, I don't know, I don't want to be like too out of left field here, but but I'd say think about, think about like the worldview in which you exist and, and, and ask yourself, is this where people are really finding joy? Because yeah. Jesus was teaching something completely different. He said to the fishermen, yeah. put down your nets and follow me. And, it, you know, Paul says, you know, to the early church, like, you know, like share with one another what you have, like slave yeah. or free, Jew or Gentile. And it says yeah. in Acts that in the early church, they they found joy and contentment. They, 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 they shared common meals and shared everything they had with one another. Um, yeah. So it and seems like they've got so joy. Much, yeah, because there's so much joy and there's health in community. Like right. It is a, a fundamental part of being human is that we are together mm. and if your things isolate you because you can't fully connect because you have and someone else doesn't 
then you're missing out on wholeness and what it is to be fully human. Yeah, and, and that's sort of the joy of giving. You know, it's great yeah. to give than to receive. I mean, this so hard, this stuff is so hard. And I think again, if you're a younger person listening to this, I'd be I'd be thinking, oh yeah, it's probably fine for you. You've probably got loads of money. You've written a new book with bad grills. I'm sure you get paid really mm-hmm. well. When I'm in your situation, I'll be really generous. But I would say mm-hmm. to you, look, I don't find it any easier to be any more generous than you would. Um, yeah. Actually, generosity is not about numerical wealth. It's about proportionate wealth. You know, Jesus yeah. says to the widow who gave just two tiny copper coins into the temple coffers that she had she was more generous than anyone who gave 100 gold coins you know any of the other men yeah. who brought into the temple treasury because proportionate yeah. to her spending power she was maxing out whereas proportionate yeah. to their spending power they were just they were barely touching the sides and so yeah. um generosity doesn't need to be about big numeric wealth generosity yeah. is about the time you spend on your friends the note you write to your mum the you know the encouragement you give to the cleaner at school or the bus conductor or you know the the kind words you say to the person who looks like they're struggling you know be generous yeah. and you'll find joy um yeah. and i i think yeah i just i kind of i i feel like there is a really unholy marketplace out there selling people the bright lights of what joy looks like and actually mm-hmm. it's free you know largely and it's it's in you and the question is really are you going to dial into it um and be attentive to it in a world of distractions yeah that's so helpful and again like that common thread of like our capacity for change our posture towards suffering um our experience of joy are all things that are available within us they're all Mm. things that we can take steps to tap into um which is great (laughs) um so thank you um as well as the kind of joy that comes from within for me there is also joy in eating stuff and so (laughs) our fourth choice is around what we're going to put in our snack bag to to fuel our chats and fuel our walk Oh dear, I, I, I probably sound very, very West London if I say it. I do love sushi. Um, okay, that uh, is very so, West yeah, London, that, but it's okay. It's <laughs> yeah, allowed. no, big fan, and uh, and so that's a that's a family favourite. Although we do normally do a Domino's on a Friday night, so that's also um, that's also a kind of family favourite. Yeah, I don't know. I'm 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 kind of I, I'm interested in all sorts of foods and and travelling a bit. Just really enjoy that. But yeah, I think sushi in the bag. Nice. That sounds excellent. I'm very happy with that. I'm not, I'm not sure how Mr. Tumnus will feel about sushi. I'd imagine that would be a bit. Yeah, no, I'm not sure. Him, but... yeah, he, he needs, he needs a some more great grain like product um, <laughs> as a centaur, I'm sure. Yeah. But the rest of us can tuck into that sushi and that would be great. Um, and we're now on to our final question, Will, yeah. um, which is this How do you mature in service? Well, Joe, I'm. Um, the best answer I can give to that is 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 actually to persist in service. Mm. Um, then actually, we're called, I think, to a you know we're called as Christians to a life of service, and um, it doesn't sound as exciting as it actually is in reality. If you said someone you know called to a life of service, it sounds like a life of of kind of boredom and you know drabness and dreariness and, and overextension, and actually. 
we're called actually to the great the great joy of of, of of serving one another, which is kind of as you described earlier, the sort of heart of what community looks like. Mm. I, I I worked at um, on the Grenfell site for a couple of years um, in something called the Healing Minds Team, and yes. effectively we're a group of of first and third sector organisations, so the NHS, and um, there's about sixteen of us on on the team, representing different charities who had sort of local investment, and it, it was really interesting. Uh, as an experience, and I'm still sort of involved in a, in a consultation paper on on it, sort of exploring the, you know, where, what what could have what could people have done differently in the circumstances. Yeah. What was really interesting about it was that initially we thought we needed to open new sort of psychological triage centres, and you know, the NHS were very animated about making counselling available to every individual on the mm. on the sort of North Kensington estate. But actually, the people of the Grenfell area in the Grenfell site um, did not have confidence in in state provision. They didn't have confidence yeah. in they, they they effectively neglected corner of Notting Hillgate, and they didn't have good relationships with the council, and they didn't feel yeah. that they would be invested in in the past. So when suddenly all these like estate agents started trying to like invite them for therapy, of course, people didn't want to go. And um, we learned very quickly that actually, if there was going to be a healing uh, in for the people of North Kensington um, and for that area, it was going to come from within the community. You couldn't parachute it in. Yeah. And that's the, the danger of service is this idea that it's something you do to people. Yes. But actually, service is something that you do with people. Hmm. And you know, I, I I think we need to be really careful as Christians to get away from the sort of almost colonialist idea that, you know, you kind of go in and help people, you know, and, and fix them and, you know, yeah. uh, you know, you, you, you give them your thing and then and then suddenly they're they're gonna be fine because they've yeah. got your thing. Actually yeah. real service is about being an alongside presence, about sharing, about communion. Um yeah. I just love that, love that um, experience and sort of the Emmaus Road journey where mm-hmm. Jesus, you know, he could have like, <clears throat> he could have imposed himself on those two guys, you know, in a really radical way. Like, why are you walking away? You know, I was crucified for you. Like, why are you walking off into the hills? And, yeah. <clears throat> you know, how could he be so disrespectful? But he like, he just talks to them and debates yeah. with them. And, you know, and it's not until they're having dinner together that he actually reveals who he actually is. It's so yeah. gentle. It's so it's so it's so servant-hearted. Yeah, that, that's what I. That's that's maturity and service right there. Yeah, investing in the relationship rather than the action, isn't it? Rather than the kind of doing, it's the the being. Yeah, I mean, there's there's absolutely. Like, I think I think the doing and being is a bit of a dichotomy that we can get into a bit of a false dichotomy because yeah. there can be that with. Um, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm an Anglican priest, and sometimes we talk about this sort of evangelicals busy doing and the sort of more hmm. Catholic sort of mentality of more being. When actually, yeah. both groups are trying to actively serve. If you if, yeah. if you're trying to be with someone who's very obvious physical need, and you know, being with them, and you're igno- ignoring their real need, Absolutely. is like yeah. clearly not service. But yeah, but equally parachuting in their need without the context of their relationship that's not really yeah. service either or us deciding what they need mm, rather right. than 
than yeah, yeah that being born out of their expressed needs and that's that's i think one of the key questions to actually how to grow and mature in service of others is to ask mm. how yeah. can i support you right now you know if you want to be a yeah. good friend be a great friend by asking the right questions you know what can yeah. i do is there anything i can do to help you right now what do you want from me how do you want yeah. me to be with you on this issue um i was rem i remember when i was at school we we did these soup runs where we take a minibus down to um the strand with like you know a busload of clothes and I think we were with the, um, I think we were the Salvation Army, and um, <clears throat> and, and we we'd kind of gang up with Salvation Army, and then well, it's not very nice to gang up with them, but we'd have soup <laughs> and we'd have clothes. And I was I always remember one night being on the Strand, and I I had this really nice leather trench coat that I got from someone. I actually thought it probably looked pretty good on me, so I was kind of I was determined I was going to palm it off onto someone that night. And I always remember this guy. He. It was a cold, cold night in November, mm. and he was really—he was wearing a pair of clothes. It was just sort of completely ripped trousers up to the knee. I don't remember if he had any shoes on or not, but he was just wearing the skinniest sort of t-shirt. And I saw him, and I said, "Oh, look, mate, I've got this—I've got this lovely warm coat for you to wear." And he's like, "I don't want—I don't want your coat, you know." And I was like. Oh, it's a really lovely coat you know it will look really good on you and you know, I got into this kind of conversation with this guy and I was yeah. desperately trying to sell him the coat that I had decided you know and I could see yeah. he was getting I could see him getting more and more upset about the fact that I was trying to offer him this coat and I was getting more and more you know upset that he wasn't receiving the coat that I was trying to offer him and I felt yeah. I felt moved by his nakedness you know and and, and suffering and he felt annoyed by my imposition and yeah. he didn't. He didn't take the coat, you know. And but I always remember the interaction, and and I, it's always a sort of thing that's taught me something significant about the fact that we perceive that we understand people's needs and wants, and then yeah. we impose ourselves on them. Mm. And actually, he might have taken my coat if I'd shown him that I cared about him before I started trying to give it to him. Yeah. And I think if I'd said to him, "Hey, can I? You know, how are you doing?" Like yeah like a cup of tea yeah and then I said how are you feeling at the moment and you know it's quite cold now isn't it is there anything you mm. need he might have said like oh I'd like a coat I'd like that coat but I yeah my my service was was impositional and was out the context of relationship mm. and so if you want to serve well you have to love well first and yeah. that comes from being willing to just be alongside and listen. You know, the, yeah. the, the, the activators on this call, you know, I know that there's always some, they'll be like going, yeah, but there's just not enough time. And you know, you've just got like, <laughs> the need's so great and you've just got to get it done. And, and I just say to you, yeah, we've all been there. You know, we've all mm. been in that place of just being urgent to help. And being urgent to help is a, a sign of your heart. You know, it's a good thing. Mm. It's a sign that you've got a heart to help. But being urgent to help isn't always the best way to help. You know, serving yeah. urgently is not always really serving. And yeah. um, a lot of serving is nonsensical. You know, I think when Jesus, when the disciples, you know, before Jesus, after he's re resurrected, and, you know, Jesus, when Jesus comes to wash the disciples' feet as an experience, you know, it's nonsensical. Like they're saying, well, you mm. know, Master, why are you washing my feet? Surely... I should be washing your feet. 
Mm. But service doesn't always make sense. But yeah. it was about honour and preferment. Jesus was saying, yeah. I'm restoring, you know, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part amongst me. So yeah. he's saying, you know, I'm 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 preferring you, I'm I'm restoring you, yeah. I'm attending to you. And the the, the the lessons I've learned in service are are always about not rushing. I've just mm. I just buried a, a, a dear friend, lady I became friends with on her cancer journey in in her late seventies. But I, I, I've just I just sadly, yeah, I just said goodbye to her last month. And um, <laughs> it's such a funny relationship, sort of COVID relationship, you know, where I'm mm. like trying to help her. She's in, she's got cancer. She's at home. She's you know we're trying to like socially distance and everything. Yeah. Um, and she just was she was so patient with me. It was so funny. Mm. And we ended up, ended up becoming brilliant friends. But I would be yeah. busy trying to tidy up, and she's like, I, you know, I don't want you to come and tidy my flat. Won't you yeah. just come and serve me communion? <laughs> you know. Yeah. What she's saying is, I want you to serve me in the way that I need to be served, yeah. not not come in here and serve me in the way that you think I need to be served. Yeah. Um, that's that's really how you serve, I think. Yeah, I think we, that's right. Yeah. And that kind of doing out of if the if the motivation is love, then it it does look different, doesn't it? And as you identify that, it's obviously you know with the Salvation Army, and so there'll be lots of people listening to this that are regularly doing soup runs, and those that have been doing it for a, a time will know that it's the relationship that makes the difference and with you being involved in, in Grenfell you would have seen the emergency service and the Salvation Army's emergency service trucks mm. there and they were busy well they're busy all the time but particularly busy over um, the period of the Queen's funeral mm. and I think down to a person if you speak to people who who were serving in those spaces yes people appreciate the cups of tea and the bacon sandwiches and the biscuits but the most profound moments are when they're able to just come along alongside someone for a conversation mm -hmm. because someone is feeling something deeply and there's no one else that they feel safe to yeah. talk yeah. to about it mm -hmm. um, and so the two come hand in hand because the that real practical act of service is meeting a need that people appreciate. But actually, because it's done in love, you create time for people mm. and a space for people to be seen and to be heard. Yeah, absolutely. You you know the the the, the material gift is just a gate really to enable mm. your love and service of someone to be to be heard and I think you know yeah. that's yeah that's absolutely you know where where, where it's at and I, you know I, I, I just I just think I guess I'd encourage people not to be impatient in service you know and mm. actually recognize it's especially when you're young you think you've got you don't think you've got very much to give you know you don't mm. you think that people would probably prefer the tea over a chat because you're like yeah you underestimate what you can offer and mm. you may be underestimated, you feel like I'm unqualified. But don't don't let that lie stick in your head because actually you've got everything you need right now to have a great conversation. And you know, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Like you 
you have a conversation you don't need to be competent you just need to be willing and kind um yeah and so don't don't write yourself out of the story and believe yeah. that things are more important than people because the things you can offer that that's fine but it's the yeah. it's the presence that you offer that's what's really important yeah that's great um well i think we've come to the end of our questions and the, oh, to the end of our end of our walk <laughs> um but it has been such a privilege to have you with us um on the all-terrain podcast oh. um with your kind of practical tools and um, as well as those kind of pointers towards hope I think so we're really grateful that you shared your experience and your um skill with us well, I've really enjoyed it Joe, and thanks so much for yeah for going on the journey with me and we even touched on some great music some great food um, <laughs> and uh, it's been really fun yeah so thank you for your time god bless you well another huge thanks to Will for coming on the all-terrain podcast I thought that conversation was so rich in wisdom and practical ideas. Mindfuel is available to buy or download where you normally get your books and I would recommend that you check it out. If you work with children or young people and are looking for ways to support them in building resilience, you should also check out our team's resource, Mindset. Mindset is a combination of training, theory and resources that will enable you to reflect and capture your own thoughts and feelings about what you're hearing, reading, seeing and feeling. And it will resource you in your interactions with children and young people. If you want more information, you can get in touch with us at childrenyouth at salvationarmy.org.uk. I'll make sure that that email address goes in the show notes too. And don't forget, I'd also really love to hear what you think about the conversations we're having. And you can join in by joining our group on Facebook. Just search the All Terrain Conversations. I'd love for it to become a space where we can ask questions, dig into the issues raised and journey together. It would also be great if you could share the podcast across your social media channels. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd love it if you could give the show a rating or even write us a review. All those things help us get the show heard by even more people. And you can now access brilliant sketch notes and an article to accompany each episode by searching for the All Terrain podcast or clicking the link in the episode description. I'll be back soon with another guest who will be facing the four choices, answering the four questions and sharing their wisdom learned along the way on the All Terrain podcast. So until then, that's goodbye and thanks for listening.